Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. Jack E. Davis is a professor of history and sustainability studies at the University of Florida. He won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for History for his book, The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, which was also winner of the Kirkus Prize, a New York Times notable book, and a Washington Post Best Book of the Year, among other accolades. Jack Davis, welcome to Florida Matters. My pleasure. Jack, you begin your story about the Gulf of Mexico by talking about Winslow Homer, the painter. Why why start with him? Well, I wanted my readers to know up front that the, the Gulf of Mexico is not a regional sea, that it's, uh, it's an American sea. It's also an international sea. And so throughout the book, I make connections between the Gulf of Mexico and people from elsewhere around the United States and, and across the globe, people, places, and uh, ecological events. And so it made sense to me to uh, open up with Winslow Homer since he was from Maine and came down to the Gulf late in life and discovered the wonderful fishing there and the beauty of the Gulf of Mexico, too. But also his sensibilities are very, uh, very much in sync with those of my own or actually the, the way I construct the book around making this connection between humanity, history, and, and nature, which, which Homer did in his paintings. And also through um, Winslow Homer, you kind of get the contrast with the Atlantic Ocean because, of course, those are some of his most famous paintings and the drama of the Atlantic Ocean compared with sort of the serenity of the Gulf. Exactly. That was uh, another strategy. Actually, there were there were a number of strategies in opening with him, and that, that was one because I knew at the front I wanted to make that comparison between the Gulf and the Atlantic. And, of course, I see the Gulf of Mexico as a superior sea to the Atlantic. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and Winslow Homer said, you know, who spent his time uh, not just painting on, on the Atlantic but fishing. He was an avid fisherman. Uh, he wrote home to his brother during that first uh, winter on, on the Gulf of Mexico that the, the fishing in the Gulf of Mexico was the best in, his mar- in America as far as he could see. Um, and what and year so was I that? that? When was he writing and um, visiting the Gulf? 1904, uh, six years before he died. He returned to the Gulf every year after, with the exception of one in which he had a stroke, uh, to fish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we might wonder why you were so fascinated with the Gulf to write this complete book about it and so much research that have gone into that. So I grew up on the Gulf, mm-hmm. uh, and I have this uh, intimate, lifelong relationship with it, and both in North Florida and uh, in the Tampa Bay area. And uh, in growing up on the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf was really my neighborhood. The, you know, the, the water was my cul-de-sac. My, the docks were my, my sidewalks. Uh, my, my little boat was my bicycle, and my fishing rod and bait were, were my bat and ball. Yeah, they were, it was so much a part of your life. So it was kind of, um, you lived there in your formative years, and it's, I guess, always fascinated you. It has. And, you know, as I was writing the book, um, I, you know, I live landlocked in, in Gainesville, Florida now. 
And as I was writing the book, each morning when I sat down, I was, I, it felt like I was going home and also going back to, to my childhood. Uh, and so writing the book was, was truly a labor of love. I never once, I never once had to fight myself to, to sit down and write this book. I was drawn immediately to my writing desk. And I write every morning, uh, even on holidays. I related a lot to that feeling because I grew up here also, um, and I was thinking about the earliest memory I had of Longboat Key was I was sailing as a little girl. My father took me sailing, and I got very, very seasick, and we got in the dinghy, and he put ashore on Longboat Key, and at that time, Longboat, there was a little motel, and that was it. It was just, you know, the Australian pines, which now we know are not supposed to be there. But they were very beautiful and white sand and just nothing there. And since then, watched this explosive growth um, along the coast and places like and these barrier islands, which is something that I know you must have been observing. And how did you feel about it? Oh, both in North Florida and Pinellas County. When I lived in North Florida in Fort Walton Beach, um, which is right next to Destin, uh, you could actually see the water then, and uh, there were no hotels. There were a couple of beach, as we called them, beachcomber motels, but no condominiums or anything like that. And today, when you're up there, you uh, you don't see the water. And it's the same in Pinellas County. You you drive down these these wonderful beachside drives. And there is this wall, or as we fondly or not so fondly call them, condo canyons you're driving through that uh, really steal away the, the, the Gulf of Mexico from you. And, yes, it is horrific on many levels. And, and of course, I'm a person who drives around uh, using landmarks. And in the Pinellas County, as you know, or the Tampa Bay area, landmarks change overnight. Uh, mm-hmm. I could be away for just uh, a couple of months at a time and, and return home and, and become lost because my, my landmarks were no longer there. They've been replaced by something else and usually something bigger. So how did you structure the book? How did you envision the structure to be like a biography of a sea or a social history? How did you decide to organize the book? Well, it's an environmental history, but it is very much a, a biography of, of, of a place. My, my previous book was a, a dual biography of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in the Everglades, and I really liked the, the biographical form, and so I wanted to pursue that in my, with my next book. Uh, and I discovered that nobody had written a comprehensive history of, of the Gulf of Mexico, and so it seemed like a, a natural fit for me. But I did want nature to be in the forefront of this book. I didn't want to write a traditional history of the sea that is plotted a, a, around human events. And Instead, I wanted to show nature as a historical agent that actually shapes the course of human history. So I organized the chapters around natural characteristics of the Gulf, estuaries, fish, uh, birds, beaches, uh, rivers, barrier islands, weather, and, and so forth. And, of course, uh, I, certainly I tell the human story there, too, because as an environmental historian, I'm interested in the, the historical relationship between nature and humans. And so there are many, many, as I call them, characters uh, in the book, like Winslow Homer and others, and, of course, most of them Gulfside folks, but fascinating, interesting people, uh, many of them who I'd not been aware of before. You devote a whole chapter to sport fishing for tarpon. I didn't realize what an impact that sport had. Yeah, I, I, I loved writing that chapter. It was so fun, and I, w- I was familiar with the tarpon's influence 
on Gulf tourism. And as I say in the book, uh, Gulf tourism did not start with our, our beautiful beaches. It started with this particular fish uh, in 1885 when a New York architect was down at Fort Myers. When Fort Myers wasn't even listed on the maps, even though it existed, he was down by Fort, between Fort Myers and Sanibel and hooked the first tarpon on, on record. And these were big fish then. They are still but 150, 200 pound tarpon were not unusual in those days, and you wow. could catch a couple of dozen in the course of a week. He hooked the first tarpon, and it set the sport fishing world on fire. People from the Northeast, the Midwest, and the British Isles converged on, on the Gulf of Mexico, mainly South Florida and Southern Texas. And of course, the folks in Texas said their tarpon were bigger than those in Florida. Mm-hmm. And there was so so many interesting historical facts around that. Like you said, their scales were used as calling cards. They'd carve the uh, name and date of whoever caught the fish and maybe leave it at a restaurant. And there was a famous one in Texas. Yes, the, their scales are silver dollar size. They're easily removed. And it, it, exactly as you said, people would write their names on the scales uh, along with the weight of the fish. In in Texas, there are scales with Franklin Roosevelt's name on them and just a number of uh, interesting and, and famous people. And in some places, those scales still exist on, on the walls. They've been there since the 19th century, such as uh, on Yuseppa Island in, in Florida down by Sanibel and, and, and Captiva. Oh, they still have those there in their clubhouse? or Th- They do, uh-huh. yes. I didn't realize... <laughs> Okay, obviously I'm not a tarpon fisherwoman, but I didn't realize you don't hook them. They their their mouth is too. You said it's like steel, so they really have to ingest the hook, or you have to catch their gill, something like that. Yes, that that that's right, and that was the trick uh, that William Halsey Wood, the the architect from New York, figured out. And and of course, a special hook was designed for the tarpon. Edward von Hoff, who built the Cadillac of, of fishing reels in, in the 19th century design, a specific uh, reel for, for the tarpon. He spent 30 years coming down from New York during the wintertime to fish for tarpon, uh, doing, as I say, quote-unquote, uh, research and design. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this really set off tourism, though, then in the area. It did. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. And, and women were just as enthusiastic about tarpon fishing. Uh, a woman held the tarpon fishing record in the late 19th century, early 20th century for seven years. Uh, she caught her tarpon probably somewhere around Sarasota, around the mouth of, of, of Tampa Bay. And so eventually uh, men and women would come down to fish for tarpon. And eventually they discovered the beaches and started coming for uh, the beaches rather than the tarpon. And by the early 20th century, the tarpon population had begun to uh, wane significantly. The, the fishing uh, had taken a heavy toll in, in some ways, making the shift to beach tourism was timely uh, and, and practical. And Hemingway, I guess, helped to popularize that, I would think. Hemingway was just an outstanding sport fisherman and a, and a fanatic about it. Uh, he caught tarp and he caught he caught everything. He caught everything big. He wanted everything big, and he fished mostly in the Gulf Stream, which is heavily populated with 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 marine life. And uh, yes, and Ted Williams is as well. Oh, that's right. Uh, he, he wrote a book about tarp and fishing. And of course, when he he came down to Florida for spring training, he would he would also fish. As did many of of the ball players. They they many of them loved to 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 fish while they were down in Florida uh, during the spring. 
So you point out that what makes the Gulf of Mexico so fascinating is the diversity and the abundance of its sea life. And you devote a chapter that you call A Fishy Sea. The fact that the Gulf was so full of fish, a lot of fishermen migrated from New England, and that itself was a major impetus for settlement along Florida's coast. Yes, and that, that expression of fishy sea comes from a poem written by Wallace Stevens, who, who liked to come down to the Gulf of Mexico and fish as well and uh, loved, loved the Gulf. Coming down from Connecticut, I should, should say, where many of those early commercial fishermen came in the early uh, 19th century. The Spanish were on the Gulf for 300-plus years. They never developed a, a commercial fishing industry. The British didn't. Uh, they started to get into it, but uh, weren't on the Gulf long enough. The French didn't. And so that was uh, developing that industry. was really left to enterprising Americans and really began to develop after Andrew Jackson seized, if you will, uh, the Floridas from, from, from the Spanish. And so from Connecticut and Massachusetts, from New England, where they'd fished out many of their cod grounds, fishermen come during the wintertime. Leonard Destin, who's the namesake of Destin, Florida, was from Connecticut uh, and permanently settled in present-day Destin. You could go to Pensacola in the late 19th century, which was probably the busiest commercial fishing port uh, on the Gulf of Mexico at the time. We know Pensacola for its Spanish heritage, a city that's very much today in touch with the southern southern heritage. Uh, but back then, it was very much a New England city. You would hear a New England accent as readily as you would hear any other accent in Pensacola. Uh, New England city, that's really... You wouldn't expect that, but they were coming down in such numbers. That's right. Um, all the names on the fish houses mm. in, in Pensacola were names of people from uh, Connecticut or Massachusetts. Yeah, and they knew what they were doing. Absolutely, they did. So I, I'm going to read this paragraph because I think it's a, it's a beautiful description of some of the different kinds of sea life that you describe. Around in the pass and into Choctaw Hatchie Bay, the bottom was grassy with intermingling beds of oysters and the water tinted by organic materials from inland wash. It was vibrant with crabs, shrimp, and a curious jumping fish called a mullet. Twelve miles out into the Gulf, Destin and other fishers from Alabama and Mississippi discovered the 100-fathom curve, a sharp 600-foot plunge where grouper, mackerel, and snapper could be caught. 200 miles more over toward the peninsula was one of the largest sponge habitats in the world. And feeding on sponges were sea turtles, riding on invisible currents to and from every corner of the Gulf. Each corner was as splendidly alive as the other. Beautiful writing, Jack. Thank you. And a lot in that paragraph. So I was, I found it surprising. At one point, you gave, gave the ranking of the seafood in economic importance. I guess this was about 100 years ago. And number one was oysters. And then sponges was second. And then grouper, mullet, shrimp, and red snapper. I, I found that surprising that oysters and sponges uh, were so economically important. Yes. Well, of course, in, in those days, we're, we're talking the 19th, late 19th century, there were no synthetic sponges. So natural sponges were what people use. Uh, they had many purposes as, as sponges do, do today. And so it was a lucrative industry. Oysters were in demand, particularly in New York City, which had uh, at one time probably the largest oyster habitat in um, North America, if, if not the world. And it had been depleted both by uh, by over-harvesting and, and pollution. And so uh, oysters from the Gulf were exported early on. Even today, 
Forty percent of domestic, or forty or more percent of domestic oysters come from the Gulf of Mexico. Some eighty uh, percent of domestic shrimp come from the Gulf of Mexico. Despite the impact we've had on the estuarine system on the Gulf of Mexico, coming from uh, various sources, uh, it still remains a very robust fishery, outperforming the East Coast and. Uh, entire East Coast fishery. And I'm not talking about Florida. I'm talking about from Maine on down to Florida in many years. And you describe what made Apalachicola, what made their oysters taste so good or what made that such a great place to find oysters in Apalachicola. You kind of describe the geography there that made that special. That magic elixir, that, that mix of fresh water from the Apalachicola River and salt water from the sea and, and the barrier islands also that help cordon in that, uh, that freshwater saltwater mix. In Apalachicola, the nutrients coming down the, the river and uh, combined with the fresh water are just ideal for the growing of these plump oysters that are the preferred oysters, domestic oysters among chefs from, from coast to coast, uh, United States coast to coast. Unfortunately, upriver activities have taken a toll on that water. It's no longer as uh, enriched with the right sort of, uh, of substances, uh, and the, the fresh water isn't flowing at the same levels as it, as it had before. Yeah, there's kind of a terroir for the oyster like there is with wine, and if it's growing in the right kind of environment, it tastes better. And you talked about the barrier islands that are by a freshwater river and how that kind of uh, filters the salt water that gets in and gives it just the right mix. And in other places around the Gulf where they have those barrier islands, they also have good oyster grounds. That's right. Barrier islands are really an important geographic feature of, of the Gulf of Mexico, important in ways other than building giant condos on them. But ecologically, they're important, just as, as you described, but also, as we know, they are excellent buffers against an intense weather uh, and uh, buffers for the mainland. There's no such thing as a, a deserted island or an uninhabited island. Those barrier islands, even the ones without the cars and the condos, are uh, flush with, with wildlife. Uh, one of my favorite characters in the book, if not my favorite, is Walter Anderson, who spent the last 20 years of his life mostly on barrier islands off the coast of Mississippi and in Louisiana. He was an artist who loved to paint and draw uh, and just and write about and be in touch with the wildlife on, on these islands that were not inhabited by humans. Mullet is another interesting character, another interesting fish that you talk about and you devote some space to. And we've talked about mullet before on this show. Uh, it's, you know, it was important for the poor people. Yeah, it's important for it's it's such an important food source for both wildlife and people. And during the Great Depression, people who lived on the Gulf of Mexico, who lived on those bays and bayous and at the mouth of rivers, didn't starve because uh, they could always go out and catch mullet. And, and in fact, the people down in Cortez called their bay the kitchen because they, when they got hungry, they would just go uh, out to the bay and, and and catch their their meal. And it's very plentiful, and, and again, it's a food fish for, for people, but it's also a fish that birds love uh, and, uh, and, of course, other fish love. As, as I, I quote someone in the book who uh, described the mullet as the poor mullet because everybody loves to eat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every predator seemed to go for the mullet. And, 
including people who, I mean, I don't know if they would have fished out every row mullet that existed, but they did a pretty good job of over-harvesting. Yes, that's that's correct. I think there can, there's an argument that can be made there. You know, I interviewed some commercial fishermen who were affected by the, the gillnet ban that took place in 1995 in Florida. They've got their own perspective. They they, they said that the, the mullet population was not nearly as diminished as the quote-unquote experts uh, said, uh, that they were still out there jumping. But, you know, the mullet is one of my early childhood memories on on the Gulf because we lived on Santa Rosa Sound up there off of Choctahatchee Bay when I was in elementary school. And uh, I can remember an old mullet fisherman who would row his boat. Uh, he did not have a motor. And uh, he would row past our dock. And my, my dad would run out to the end of the dock and wave him down and buy, buy mullet from him as mm-hmm. well as crabs. And how would he cook those mullet, your dad? You know, I don't know because I don't like fish. <laughs> no, you don't like I, fish? I, I don't like fish. I don't like cra- – there's some fish. It's got to be very mild. Mullet, I've never – I understand the fascination. I understand people salivating over mullet, but I cannot stand mullet. I'm sorry. I don't like uh, shrimp. I don't like crabs. I don't like oysters. I will eat some clams and uh, – but unless it's a mild fish, uh, I'm just not. I'm just not into it. I find that fascinating because one of the questions I had for you was writing about all of this seafood and this richness in seafood and how desirable a lot of these things. Oh my gosh, the the oysters and the red snapper and the shrimp. Um, if you became more interested in cooking seafood while writing, but I guess you got even more turned off. <laughs> No, I, I wouldn't say I get turned out. I, I, what happened was I'm, I'm questioning myself. Why don't I like this stuff? Because I, in uh, books I've read about the Gulf of Mexico or parts of the Gulf of Mexico, about fishing on the Gulf of Mexico, sometimes the, these authors talk about uh, having these sumptuous meals and uh, just these culinary orgasms, if you will, mm-hmm. eating shrimp or crab or, or lobster. And I just can't figure out why I can't have that same uh, sort of uh, response to seafood. I was hosted up in in Prouts Neck, Maine uh, uh, last summer at Winslow Homer Country, and my host brought out just the most beautiful red Maine, you know, pink cooked orange, pink, red uh, Maine lobsters, and I, and I had a decline and have a salad, and everybody else is just drooling. <laughs> well, I admire you for having so much interest in writing about it, even though, you know, you don't like to eat it. You know, another thing I wanted to talk about, though, was ice. You talk about what a game changer the ice business was to fishermen in Florida. Yes, it was, because, uh, you know, mullet was is something that uh, is easily dried and, and, and salted. And so mullet early on was, was a fish that could be shipped around uh, the country or to Cuba or the Bahamas, wherever else uh, there was a market for it. But other fish either required staying alive until uh, they got to port and, and then sold generally locally uh, and, until ice came along. It, it wasn't uh, really possible to, to ship fish except for that that was dried and salted on the railroads from, from the Gulf of Mexico to other parts of the country. Uh, snapper was one thing that was really confined regionally early on. But once ice came along, it became more popular in um, uh, other parts of the country. In in those uh, 
those uh, big cities with with a um, with a real restaurant market, uh, and and same with other uh, marine life too, uh, not not just fish, but the commercial fishing industry generally. So you mentioned briefly your writing style. What what is your writing style like? You've been very prolific. My writing style is I don't write for an academic audience. As I like to say in my talks, you you write a book for an academic audience, it ends up in an academic library, and you do you do the twenty dollar bill test. You know, as soon as it's on the shelf in the academic library, you turn to page one hundred, put the twenty dollar bill in. You go back ten years later, and you take a twenty dollar bill back. <laughs> um, but I wanted, I very much wanted this book. I, I wrote this book for a national audience because I wanted my readers to know that all Americans are connected, whether they've seen the Gulf or not, are connected to the Gulf both historically and ecologically. And so I love writing. Uh, I work very, very hard at it. I have a great writing partner in Cynthia Barnett, uh, who you probably are aware of. Water Uh, expert. uh, Water expert, Mm -hmm. wonderful Florida journalist, excellent book writer. Her last book on the history of rain was a long listed for the National Book Awards. So she reads everything I write and draft. I read everything she writes and draft. And that's, that is uh, tremendously important to me. I read good writing and I pay attention to how good writing is written. Uh, and I pay attention to the words. I pay attention to the sentence structure, to the paragraph organization all of the techniques, and and I can spend an entire morning on a single sentence or a couple of sentences, uh, and I'll do that in, in, until I get it right. And Cynthia and I have been known to email back and forth sentences for hours, the same damn sentence, and, uh, you know, because we wanted to get it right. I don't know how many times I wrote that prologue, the opening, you know, the Winslow Homer opening to, to the, the, the book. It took me months to, to get that the way I wanted it. Because it set the tone for the rest of the book. Do you, That's right. Do you wait for inspiration, or are you someone that is a very um, disciplined writer? Do you get up at a certain time every day and work before you go teach a class? I am very disciplined. Uh, I was up at 3 o'clock this morning writing and uh, uh, writing for a couple of hours. I'm working on a book on the bald eagle now, a cultural and natural history. Mm-hmm. And then I go back to sleep for, for a couple hours, and, and then I get up again and, and, and write. So I get two mornings out of each day because that's when I'm freshest is, is in the morning. And, the, you know, if the inspiration isn't coming, I get up, I take a walk, or I, or I work out, or, or I go fix breakfast. And in most cases, the the, uh, the words of, will eventually come uh, to me. Or if I'm if things aren't moving, I'll read good writing, and sometimes that that kicks in the inspiration. Have Oftentimes you, that does. Have you thought about writing a novel? You know, I've tried to write a couple of um, short story, you know, fiction short stories, and been rejected. I, you know, I've toyed with the idea, and people have suggested I, I might do it. But it's a, it's a, it's a very different animal. You know, a lot of fiction writers are able to bridge over into uh, nonfiction. But I think those who start out as nonfiction writers are there are fewer who make the uh, the transition to to fiction. That's interesting. Jack Davis, thanks so much for speaking with us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for bringing me back home. (laughs) Florida Matters is on Twitter at Florida Matters and Florida Matters is available as a podcast. You can search for it wherever you get your podcasts or go to our website, WUSF.org and click the listen tab. 
Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Craig George. The show is produced by Stephanie Colombini. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.